Uh, well, welcome today. Glad to have you here. If you are new, if this is your first time here, uh, we're especially glad that you're joining us. My name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here, and we just want you to uh, feel so welcome. Well, today we're beginning a new series about sin, which is not a topic that we hear a lot about these days. Uh, sin used to be a big deal. I mean, it used to be that there was a time in the past when Christians hated sin, when they, they feared it, they fled from it, they grieved over it. Uh, it used to be that some of our grandparents would agonize over their sins. You know, a, a man who lost his temper would question whether he could take communion on Sunday. Or a woman who envied her sister for many years would fret about whether that would affect her, you know, her eternal salvation. Catholics would line up for confession and Protestant preachers would get up and confess our sins. And uh, I'm told that there was as many sermons back in the day about sin as there was about grace because it was assumed that to understand either of those terms, you had to understand both of those terms. But of course, uh, these are different days we're living in, right? I mean, these days, if you ask people about sin in general, most people out there would put it in one of two categories. Either they would see it as sort of this kind of light, uh, funny thing. The thing you would sort of talk about with a wink and a smile. Like, you know, you would accuse someone like, oh, you've sinned. Like, is it sort of a bit of an inside joke? Or, or it's the kind of thing that would speak of like a kind of an innocent overindulgence. Like you'd see the word sin these days on a... On a dessert menu, right? I mean, this chocolate cake with a million calories is sinfully delicious. That's sort of one perspective of sin in our world today. The other is sort of the opposite extreme of that. To see sin not as this sort of fun thing that you kind of laugh off, but as this, this evil thing that would be used by the religious crowd uh, that would be bigoted and narrow-minded and try to force people to act a certain way. And the, you know, I mean, this is expressed well by uh, Richard Dawkins, famous uh, uh, atheist who, um, uh, you know, looks at this view of sin and he ridicules it. He says this, he, he ridicules what he calls the unhealthy preoccupation of early Christian theologians with sin. He writes, they, they could have devoted their pages and their sermons to extolling the sky splashed with stars or mountains and green forests and seas and dawn choruses. These are occasionally mentioned, but the Christian focus is overwhelmingly on sin, 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 sin. What a nasty little preoccupation to have dominating your life. Sam Harris is magnificently scathing in his letters to a Christian nation. Your principal concern appears to be that the creator of the universe will take offense at something people do while naked. This prudery of yours contributes daily to the surplus of human misery. That's the other view of sin. Either it's something that we kind of joke and laugh at, or it's something that we see as sort of bigoted and, and narrow-minded and nasty and deeply wrong. And so it's no surprise that, that some Christians, some churches have sort of tried to downplay this whole idea of sin when it comes to the Christian faith. I mean, they, they, they want to engage the culture. They want to be relevant in the conversations that are taking place. And so instead, they focus on things like redemption and uh, renewal and forgiveness and restoration and green forests and, and seas and dawn courses, the, the things that Dawkins sort of talks about. And they fear that if we talk too much about sin, that it's negative, 
that it will turn people off, that it will make Christianity seem medieval and judgmental. However, when, when, when Christians, when churches take that kind of approach, the, the, the problem is, and, and leave out the whole sort of conversation about sin, the result is that too often all that's left is sort of a warmed-over version of the fashionable ideas of the day, sprinkled with what, what one commentator calls the fairy dust of a few carefully chosen Bible verses. And the result of abandoning or, or way downplaying a Christian view of sin is not only that we abandon a key part of the Christian faith, but in the end, we still end up being irrelevant because we're basically saying what everyone else is saying anyway. The other option that churches choose is to go the extreme opposite way, to hold fast to the genuine, certified, full-strength, double-down, unadulterated, biblical view of sin, but to communicate that with condemnation and denunciation. I mean, this is the hellfire and brimstone crowd, right? And, and this isn't helpful either. The result of this view of sin or this approach to sin is simply to uh, forfeit any opportunity to humbly engage the culture around us. Instead, if, if a church or an individual takes that kind of mindset towards sin, really their, their goal then is just to simply hunker down in their fortresses, their little churches or their little groups of, of friends and just wait for Jesus to come back and rescue them and, just, and to destroy all the evildoers out there. And that too is an abandonment of the mission that Jesus gave his disciples, to make disciples of all nations, to share the good news of the gospel. In our series, we want to avoid both of those traps. Instead, we want to simply look at what the Bible actually says about sin, unashamedly, but without condemnation or judgment. And so I want to give you four reasons why it's important that we spend time examining and thinking about and understanding what the Bible teaches about sin. Here's the first reason. Because sin twists our character. You know, there are all kinds of things that cause troubles in this world. There are things that are, we would label as annoyances, right? I mean, you come to the turn lane, you're waiting to turn, the guy ahead of you is fiddling on his phone, and the light starts flashing to turn. But you know what? He's busy texting something important. And he's like, hey, 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 pay attention. And he looks up just in time, always just in time to say, oh, it's great. And he pulls through and leaves you at the red light. That's, that's annoying, right? There's other things, other troubles that we have that are more significant. Regrets, for instance. Decisions that we've made that we say, oh, I wish that I would have, I wish that I would have made a different choice because it put me on a different trajectory than I think I want to be on right now. Then there are the things in our lives that we would classify as hardships loneliness, sickness, financial troubles, things that can consume great amounts of time and energy and are difficult for us. And then there's fears, the fear of, of losing our job, the fear of being rejected by someone that we love, the, the, the fear of, of sickness and, and of dying, the, the, the fear of losing someone that we love. I mean, there's all these kinds of fears that can haunt us in all kinds of ways. And all of these things, annoyances, regrets, hardships, fears, they all cause trouble in our lives. But none of them compares to sin for the amount of trouble that they cause in our lives. 
Because, well, those things put pressure on us from the outside. Sin destroys us from the inside. See, sin distorts our character. It twists who we are. Sin warps our thought, our thoughts, our emotions. It warps our speech and our actions. It blinds a person's mind. It hardens their heart. It disorders their will. It saps their strength. It dampens their affections. You see, all those other things kind of come from outside to us, but sin is like the disease of the soul. And it causes, it causes the very center of our humanity to be twisted. See, sin is not good for you. It wrecks you at the deepest part. It's the first reason why we need to look more carefully at it. Secondly, sin causes misery. I mean, it's bad enough that it twists us and, and, and distorts our own character, but it does much more than that. It causes misery for all kinds of people around us, right? I mean, it's, it's one thing to unintentionally or accidentally harm or offend someone else, but it's another thing to do it with intention, deliberately, consciously, actively. It causes all kinds of misery in people's lives. I mean, and, and you can see this misery every place, all over the place, right? I mean... When somebody is, is defrauded because they thought that they were genuinely helping someone else, but instead they were taking advantage of them to get their money. Or when, uh, when a drug dealer hooks a teenage kid and, and begins to lead them into a life of addiction. Or when you read about some powerful politician or leader somewhere that goes to bed fat and happy every night and thousands and thousands of children go to bed hungry because of his greed. Or when you hear about someone who, who just hates, you know, someone says their neighbor just hates them just because of petty little things. You say, what, what misery because of sin? And of course, we know it in our own life, right? I mean, when somebody is selfish towards you, when somebody celebrates your misfortune, when someone deceives you for their own benefit, when someone looks down upon you because you're not good enough for them, or when you're selfish towards someone, when you celebrate someone else's misfortune, when you deceive them because it's good for you, when you look down on them or exclude them because they're not good enough for, for you, it causes misery in people's lives, doesn't it? And often it's just misery for everyone. I was talking to my friend the other day. He's coaching basketball. I mean, he, he's told me, he says, yeah, we were playing, my, my, my team was playing in a school gym. The kids in the school were on my team. And at halftime, one of the boys on his team went out to the hallway. And when he came back in, his eyes were all red and watering. And he said, what happened? It turns out that when he went out to the hallway, in the hallway was his father and his father's friend. But these two men who had been friends somehow got to mis disliking each other and they literally got into a fist fight in the hallway at the halftime of their kids' basketball game. And one of the kids, or one of, the, one of those fathers in the middle of the fight pulled out a mace and pepper sprayed the other one. And this kid happened to be in the hallway when all this happened and, and his eyes ended up being affected by that. That's just misery. I mean, two men who were friends now fist fighting in front of their, their son and using mace. I mean, sin 
Sin causes misery, and it's often the result of misery. And this is, this, this is one of the consequences of sin that isn't just acknowledged by Christians. I mean, this is a universal thing. Other faiths, and even if you're, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're like, I don't know if I'm really like a religious person, right? I mean, wrongdoing, even if you don't see it as an affront to God, if you wouldn't call it sin per se, nevertheless, like everyone else, you still notice when it happens. You resent it when it happens to you. You're still enraged by, by injustice and lawlessness and envy and meanness of all types. So even if you wouldn't, you know, consider it sin, nevertheless, this conversation is worth participating in because it is a very clear issue among the human race. Second reason why we're going to look at sin some more. The third reason why we need to talk about sin is because it is an affront to God and it is subject to his wrath. You see, it's important to understand that, that sin is, is uh, that what sin is all about is that it's an affront to God. But more than just being an offense to God, it is literally treason against God. Because when we sin, when, because we are sinners, we're the natural, naturally enemies of God. Because he's the one who created this world. And he created it good and right and proper. And when we sin, we destroy what is good and right and proper. And therefore, we are due punishment for what we've done. It's like this. Think about, think about your favorite store, right? I mean, a clothing store or a sports store or like a car dealership. Imagine that you, one day you walk into this place. It's beautiful. And you pull out from your jacket spray paint and you begin to just spray paint everything and and you go in the car dealership with your with your sledgehammer you begin to smash the cars you go into the sports store and you take the the skis and throw them through the plate glass window you destroy what is good and beautiful and and the owner comes out and says what are you doing and you say well look 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 I, I didn't do nothing to you so I don't know why you're so upset like, oh no, even though you didn't do it personally to me, it is an affront to me. And there will be consequences for what you do. And the same is true when we harm God's creation. And in particular, the most valuable part of his creation, other human beings. It is an affront to God. It is a rebellion against him. It is a vandalism of the good that he has created. And the consequences that are severe. In fact, it's this, it's this issue, the issue of the consequences that we are due for our sin that lie at the very heart of the work of God in the world. If you read the four accounts of Jesus' life, the gospel accounts of his life, they are what, what Martin Kaler, a, a, a biblical scholar, once famously called passion narratives with an extended introduction. In other words, he says, if you read the Gospels, the primary focus is about Jesus' death and his resurrection because this is the central focus of God's work in the world around us. He's come to, to seek a way to, to give us a, a solution to the consequences and the, and the price that is due for our sins. It's so important. It's so central. It's such a big issue for the human race. In fact, the theologian Cornelius Plantiga writes this. These things tell us that the main human trouble is desperately difficult to fix, even for God, and that sin is the longest running of human emergencies. 
It's impossible to truly understand the message of the gospel without starting with sin. See, if you misunderstand what sin is, if you misunderstand what the Bible teaches about sin, then you begin to think that God is just a valet. He's just your personal assistant who's there to come alongside you when things get a little tough and kind of help you along, serve you a little bit, give you a little boost of energy, a little extra zip to get through it all. That he ought to be there to serve you. That's if you misunderstand what sin is about. But when you understand what sin is and what the consequences are and what is due for you and that God sent his son Jesus to be your savior. And where you'd be without that, if when you understand that, then it changes how you see your entire relationship with God. Then you understand why he should not only be your savior, but also your Lord. Understanding sin is central to understanding our relationship with God. And then finally, a fuller understanding of sin is important for human flourishing, which is fascinating to think about. You see, this is surprised us, but, but a proper understanding of sin actually gives us a proper filter to see and understand the culture and the world around us. It actually gives us a platform from which to engage the world around us, which seems the opposite of what most people think. Christian philosopher and thinker Christopher Watkins writes this, put it at its simplest, Making more of sin is good for society. As a matter of fact, it is also good for democracy, good for equality, good for resisting tyranny and imperialism, and good for finding meaning in life. Sin itself is not good. I mean, we would, it is safe to say, be better off without sin. But an approach to society that does not shy away from the, the robust biblical doctrines of sin and judgment has much more of a fresh, truthful, and yes, positive vision to offer than one that fails to see what the Bible hides in plain sight about sin. Isn't that fascinating? We're going to talk about this as we go through this series. But what he argues is that when, when we see sin the way the Bible sees it, it actually strengthens our view of democracy, strengthens the, the, the case against tyranny and imperialism, strengthens our understanding of human flourishing. So as we walk through this, as we study it, we're going to talk not only about what it does in our life, what it does to others, but what it means for the culture in general when we have a proper biblical understanding of sin. So there's great value in us diving into this study. Now, the Bible has a great deal to say about sin. I mean, from Genesis chapter 3, when sin first entered the world, all the way to the end of Revelation, when, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, and there's no more, no more death and mourning or crying or pain. All the way in between, the Bible talks continually about sin. But one of the, the most intentional, the, the, the best conversations about sin in the Bible is, is found in the opening chapters of the book of Romans. So now, between now and Easter, we're going to spend some time walking deeply through the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And, and what we're going to find is both a clear, a thoughtful, and a very deep dive into this whole question of sin and what it is and what it means and what its consequences are. But also, there's this deep and this beautiful, incredible hope about what God has done and the solution that he has for sin and the freedom and the hope that we can find from the sin in our life. So that's what we're going to do. In fact, today we want to start 
by looking at how Romans begins. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me. Romans chapter 1. Now, uh, here's the thing about the book of Romans. The book of Romans is not a theological textbook. Rather, it's a letter written to a particular people in a particular place in a particular time. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the people in the church of Rome, which means that when it comes to these conversations about the gospel and about sin and, and all of that, this is not some philosophical, theoretical, ivory tower conversation by some academic that's disconnected from the real world. No, no. This is a conversation and a letter that's written to people who have jobs and families and hobbies and dreams and struggles and, and hopes. This conversation about sin is going to be not only deeply theological, but eminently practical in our lives because it's written to real people in the real world. So here's how it begins. It begins like all letters in the ancient world did with an introduction stating who the letter is from and who it is written to. Here's what it says. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his, right, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, that's, quite, that's quite an introduction. Let's go back and, and walk through it so that we understand clearly what Paul is saying. Paul begins by introducing himself. And in many ways, he gives a bit of a CV, a, a bit of a resume of who he is. And he does this here more than others because when an important letter was written in the ancient world by someone in authority to, to giving instructions about an important topic, they would always begin by listing sort of their, their, their resume, who they were. So if the emperor wrote a letter, it wouldn't just be from the emperor. It'd be from the emperor and, and what he had done and who he was and all of those kinds of things. And now Paul does the same thing. He, here's, here's how he begins. He says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, here he's stating not only that he is a servant of Jesus Christ, but he is echoing a term that is applied to both Moses and to King David. In other words, he begins by saying, what I'm about to write to you, I come to you under the same power and the same authority that Moses and King David had when they wrote their words. And then he goes on to say this, called to be an apostle. Now the word he used for called is literally uh, the word summoned. Like as if a, a general would summon one of his soldiers. He says, I've been summoned. I've been given a mission and a mandate, and that is to be an apostle. Now, an apostle is, was a, one of the select people that Jesus specifically called to deliver the message of the gospel, his message to the world around him. In fact, if you read Jesus, one of his most famous prayers is found in John chapter 17. The first part of that prayer is all prayers about his apostles. 
And near the end of his prayer for the apostles, he writes this, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. In other words, Jesus entrusted his message, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He entrusted it to his apostles, who he then sends into the world to deliver it to the rest of us. In fact, the very next thing that Jesus prays is this. He says, my prayer is not only for them, the apostles alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. The way that we know about Jesus, the way that we know about his teachings and what it's all about is through the, the teachings of the apostles. And, and the apostle Paul says at the beginning of his letter, he says, I too have been chosen and appointed, summoned by Jesus to be an apostle. And the message that I have is the same message that the apostles that walked with Jesus together all those years had. He says, I've been set apart for the gospel of God. In other words, what I am about to tell you is the exact same thing that the other apostles will tell you about Jesus and his message. But he goes on to indicate that he has a unique mandate. And that is to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, to the non-Jewish world, which applies to most of us in this room. Here's what he writes. He says, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, to bring many to faith in Jesus, and then to be obedient in their faith to him for the sake of his name among all the nations. So his mandate from Jesus himself is to bring the gospel to people like us. So, do you understand what Paul is saying here at the beginning of his letter? He's saying that what he is going to write in the rest of his le this letter is the very words of God himself. But what he's about to write in this letter, he says, has more authority on these topics than your opinion. What, what he's going to say trumps how you feel. What he's going to say is more true than what the culture is going to say. What he's saying is that on this topic, on, on the message of the gospel and all that is related to it, he is the authority. He, he isn't claiming to be an authority on medical practices, on engineering, on how to run a great business, on on how to make your lawn beautifully green or a million other things. There's others who are authorities on that. But he's saying on this topic, on this issue, when, when it comes to what God says about sin and death and judgment and wrath and salvation and freedom and hope and life, on these things, he is the authority. And this is important because he's going to say some things that are hard, that are unpopular. He's going to say some things that maybe you don't like. And the temptation is going to be, as it so often is in our day, to simply write off that part. Say, well, I mean, he lived a long time ago in another culture. Uh, he's not as enlightened as we are these days. Or he's simply wrong because, because I disagree with him. Because it, it, it feels wrong what he's saying. But in doing that, you're putting yourself in a higher authority than the Apostle Paul. And if you're tempted to put yourself in an authority above him, you have to ask yourself, based on what? 
based on your reason, based on what you've heard out there that is different than what he says, based on the fact that it doesn't make you feel good? I mean, where's the basis for your authority to trump his authority? Because, of course, these days it's not popular for us to submit to somebody else's authority. But the fact of the matter is we need authority in our lives. If we don't have authority in our lives, I mean, the world becomes chaos. It becomes anarchy. Those who study authority say there are really two types of authority. There's what's called imperial authority. In, in other words, it's authority based upon your position, upon who you are. So a king or an emperor would have imperial authority. But same, in the same vein, you know, a, a park ranger would have imperial authority to open or close a park trail. I mean, if you go to climb Mount Everest and the park ranger says, sorry, it's too dangerous, he closes the trail, you can't go up the trail. He has that kind of authority. But there's a, a second kind of authority. It's called voracious authority. And that's the kind of authority that is granted to someone because it is widely acknowledged by everyone that they are the unrivaled authority on that topic. They're the expert. They have more knowledge, more insight, more experience in that topic, in that area than anyone else. So therefore, they are the authority. So if you come to climb Mount Everest, the park ranger has imperial authority to say no, but someone who has ver voracious authority would be like the world expert on climbing Mount Everest. And if they say, you shouldn't climb the Mount, Mount Everest because it's not safe. They can't stop you from doing it. But, but if you say, well, I, I'm a reasonable person. I climbed Mount Alouette once here. I'm going to be fine. And you go past them. You're not showing your wisdom. You're displaying your foolishness because they have that kind of authority. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to sin, and all of those things related to it, Paul has both of those types of authority. He's an apostle, appointed by Jesus himself. So by nature of who he is, he has what we would consider to be imperial authority. He speaks with the delegated authority of none other than Jesus Christ himself on this topic. That's real authority. But on top of that, on top of that, he has voracious authority because no one in this room, not myself, not you, nobody has thought more deeply and more carefully about the gospel message and about sin and its implications and its consequences than the Apostle Paul has. Which means that as we go through this series, if you're a follower of Jesus, when we talk about these things, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he has summoned the Apostle Paul to be an apostle. It means that whether you like it or not, you need to submit yourself and say, okay, these are the words of God in my life. But if you're someone who says, well, I, I wouldn't put myself in that category. I don't know that I'm a follower of Jesus yet. I'm just checking it out. No problem. Again, always glad that you're just willing to explore it. But the invitation to you is to, to submit to the voracious authority of the Apostle Paul. He's thought about this so deeply. He's like the, the world-renowned expert on this particular topic. So whether you agree or not, you should submit yourself and say, okay, I'm going to learn. I'm going to listen. 
around this topic to what he has to say. See, that's how Paul begins this letter, by, by saying, look, what I'm about to write you, you should listen. But then he also talks about us, about those who receive this letter. And here's what he says about, uh, about the, the church in Rome and by extension about us. In verse 6, he writes that he has this mandate to bring the gospel to all, all nations. And then he says this, which includes you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Same word again, called, summoned. You and I, if we're followers of Jesus, have been summoned by him to live a life of obedience to what he calls us to. That's who we are. And then he goes on to say this in verse 7. To those in Rome who are loved by God, not only called but loved. And love, the term there, is like a tender term. It's, a, it's the kind of term uh, that could be translated dearly loved. It's a kind of term that is used within families to express a deep love. So a father would have this kind of love towards his only son or his only daughter. Or a mother would express this kind of love to the, to the man who married her daughter and who she just wants to know, you're part of us. You're deeply loved. You're, 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 you're family. See, what Paul says is this. We're not just the people of God, although we are. We are family and he is our father. And again, this is going to be important as we get into our conversation about sin because we're going to hear some hard things. The Apostle Paul, uh, not Apostle Paul, rather, the, the early church father, uh, Augustine, writing in the 4th century, so remember the context, in the 4th century he writes this. A father spanks a boy while a kidnapper caresses him. Offered a choice between blows and caresses, who would not choose the caresses and avoid the blows? But when you consider the people who give them, you realize that it is love that spanks, wickedness that caresses. Augustine says, when it comes to hard things in your life, it's important not just to look at the hard things, but to look at the, the motivation behind it, the source of it. And when it comes to a conversation of, about sin and its implications and its consequences, it will feel sometimes like blows, but you need to know that the blows of a loving father who wants to bring healing and hope and freedom in your life. And don't be misled by the caresses of the, those who would say, sin is nothing, don't you worry about it, it's just all made up, it's just a, a scam, because they will lead you into a, a sickness that will lead to death. Paul says you are deeply loved by your Father in heaven. You're part of the family. So, listen, not only it's the sin, but about all the gospel that he is about to proclaim. And then finally, he uses one more term to describe us. He says this, to all of those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. A saint is a word that, that we often think does not apply to us. We think a saint is someone who has worked extra hard, has been incredibly, you know, devoted and religious and has earned God's special favor. Which is ironic because that's exactly what the gospel doesn't teach. It's the exact opposite of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not about our hard work. It's not about earning God's favor. So that's not what the word saint means. Saint this is a Greek word, hagios, which literally means sanctuary, meaning the place where God dwells. The Apostle Paul writes to us and says, you are saints. 
If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the living God, the spirit of the living God literally comes and dwells within you, within your body. And when we gather together, we are the temple of God. He dwells among us, not because of the building, but because of the people who've been transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be saints, which means that after service today, if you want, you can greet each other as saints, which ought to be fun, right? The Apostle Paul says this, that he has been called by God to declare the message of the gospel with the authority of Jesus himself to us who've been called to be obedient to Jesus, who are deeply loved, we're part of the family of God and who are saints, who are set apart for God to dwell in us for his glory and his honor. So that's how this whole conversation begins. I want to invite you to join us over the next number of weeks as we're going to talk about sin, which can be an honest, a clear-minded, careful conversation about sin, both in our lives and in the world around us. But it isn't going to be one that is filled with condemnation and damnation and hellfire and brimstone. But neither will be one where we kind of downplay it and sweep it under the carpet. Instead, we're just going to be open to what the Bible says. And we're going to be open to the Holy Spirit to convict us. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us, it's never about shame and guilt and condemnation. Rather, it's about repentance and forgiveness and hope and new life. It's about healing. It's about freedom. And so I want to invite you to join us as we start on this journey over the next number of weeks in the opening chapters of Romans and hear what God has to say about sin and the solution that he offers us for that. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Well, God, we come to you today. Uh, and God, we just, we just acknowledge again that sin is a real thing. Whether we call it sin or not, God, it's just hard to deny that it is out there, that, that, that it is a a scourge on the human race, that it causes untold misery. But more than that, God, we acknowledge that it's an affront to you, that it is treason against you, that it is, that it is due your wrath, your punishment. And God, we, we begin this series again by confessing to you our sins, by repenting of our sins again. By God saying, would you change us? Would you work in us? Would your, would your spirit form and shape us to be more like Jesus? Would we live in a way that honors you? And so God, as we enter this series, as we dive deep into, into what your word says, Lord, would our hearts be open? Would you convict and change and, 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 and work among us, God? For your name's sake and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for coming again and joining us today as we worship God, as we hear his word, as we allow him to speak into our life. Let me send you out with the words that Paul writes to the church in Rome after he introduces himself. Here's what he says. To all those in Rome, to those in Maple Ridge, Pitt Meadows, 
Langley, Mission, all the surrounding areas who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. Let me encourage you. Take a moment. Turn to the person beside you if you want. Just say hi. Greet them again today. So many new people. It's just wonderful to just take a moment and say hi. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.